Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 1. That will be Matthew, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 2. Sorry about that. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah, in those days of Herod the king, the Magi came from the east and arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then Herod, the king, heard this, and he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And he said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what is written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi to determine the exact time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I may too come and worship him. After hearing the king, he went away and the star, the went away and the star which had, which was seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child and Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. This is the reading of God's word. All right, well, good morning. You can stay in Matthew chapter 2 as we uh, continue to show that it is perfectly legal to talk about Christmas things in late September. We got away with it last week and nobody stopped us. We're going to do it some more by looking at the coming of the wise men after the birth of Jesus. And we saw last week in Matthew's account of the birth of Jesus that when God the Son took on flesh and dwelt among us, that this is a miraculous incarnation of the Son of God. And now we're coming to the first 12 verses of chapter 2, and we're going to see how particular individuals and particular groups respond to the coming of Jesus. And we're all familiar with the story of the wise men, but unfortunately, much of our understanding of this narrative is actually a, a misunderstanding. It's informed more by tradition and by sentiment than it is informed by the text of Scripture. And the truth is we we know very little about who the wise men were or or where they came from or how they dressed or how they traveled. Um, Here's what we know for sure. They were men. They were wise. They came from the east. They were looking for the Christ child so they could worship him. And that's pretty much it. And you can find a lot of books and listen to a lot of sermons and and read a lot of commentaries that give some some very confident assertions as to who these wise men were. But as you start to look into that, you'll start to realize that they don't really agree with each other. Uh, So 
a lot of ink has been spilled trying to discern just who these men were as well as exactly what sort of astronomical phenomenon took place in the night sky but I would submit to you this morning that these details they really don't matter that much we don't want to lose sight of the primary facts that are being given to us here in the gospel and that is the long-awaited Messiah has just been born his birth was miraculous he was born of a virgin in Bethlehem as the prophets foretold long before an angel told Joseph to name the child Jesus for he was to be the savior of his people a group of wise men traveled a great distance having seen a star in the heavens to worship this infant as king of the Jews and this is a title that is so meaningful that the one who currently held the right to that title is so disturbed that he would in the following verses murder infants and toddlers to safeguard his power so those are the dramatic facts of the narrative of Christ's birth and in the period afterwards so we don't really need to distract ourselves with questions of exactly when the wise men arrived or what role they might have played in the political landscape of the ancient Far East or or how certain stars and planets may have lined up in ways to cause the phenomenon that they saw instead I want us to focus on what Matthew focuses in on and that's three very different responses to the news of Christ's birth responses that in many ways mirror the ways in which men and women today continue to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ and so we're gonna look at this passage and we're gonna give particular attention to the responses of Herod of the chief, chief priests and scribes and of the magi or the wise men so let's first look at the response or or the rejection of Herod we read in verse 1 of our narrative that this takes place after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king and so it's needful for us to consider at the start who Herod was before we can see how he responded to the news of Christ's birth and understanding the former will help us to understand the latter now something interesting in your Bibles you see the name Herod a lot uh, it appears over 50 times in the New Testament but there are actually five different men that this is referring to so when you're reading your Bible and you hear Herod did this or they didn't go here because of Herod or or Herod had so-and-so killed it's not all the same guy uh, for the most part that is speaking of the descendants of this Herod in Matthew chapter 2 and that is Herod the Great and Herod the Great did do some great things it's that's how he got the name he was responsible for strengthening Jerusalem's defenses uh, he erected a harbor city named Caesarea which you'll see at other places in the New Testament it was a very important city and he even actually restored the temple to its former glory the temple in his early days of ruling was quite small and quite shabby and he took on the task of restoring it to the full size of Solomon's temple and making it more impressive and so he was great in some ways but uh, he was also cruel he was also notoriously power hungry 
Although he was a non-Jew, he was an, an Edomian, Herod managed to get himself appointed as king of the Jews by the Roman Empire. And he maintained and he defended that claim and that title at any cost. This is a man who would go to any length, commit any atrocity in order to maintain his position of authority. Herod's brother-in-law started to become quite popular, particularly with the Jews. So Herod invited him to a party at the lake. And he had men who secretly drowned him to take him out of being a threat to him. Uh, he executed his wife. He executed his mother-in-law. He killed the brother of his next wife. He even killed three of his own sons to remove threats to his rule. This is a man so maniacal that he feared when he died, no one would mourn his birth. So he gave orders that at the end of his life, all the great men of the city were to be rounded up. And at the moment he died, they were all to be put to death. So there would be great mourning in Jerusalem. Thankfully, that wasn't carried out, but it gives you some insight into who Herod the Great was. He would go to any length. He would commit any atrocity to maintain his position, as we said. And so this is the situation at hand when the wise men show up in Jerusalem and begin asking everyone they see, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? As the grammar of the Greek shows us, they're saying this continually. They were, they were asking continuously, where is he who has been born king of the Jews until this question reached Herod himself. And so how do you think this cruel authoritarian took to the news that one had been born king of the Jews, a title that he grasped so intensely. Well, we see that when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Well, why is all Jerusalem troubled? Well, because when Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. An upset Herod is a dangerous Herod, so all Jerusalem was troubled with him. He's troubled by this news, and so what does he do? Assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. He wants to know where this new king was to be born. And knowing Herod's history and, and the atrocity that he's going to bring to the city of Bethlehem in later verses, we can be sure that his intentions were evil. He wants to remove yet another threat to his power. And after he is informed on where the child is to be born, he needs to figure out when the child was born. Let's look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. This is uh, hypocrisy of biblical proportions. I don't know if you can find a, a greater example than this in Scripture of, of hypocrisy at work. He has no intention of worshiping this child. He is pretending to care about the birth of the Christ so that he might get rid of him, that he might put him to death. And he tried to find out exactly 
when the child had been born by seeing when had they seen this star? He's asking the wise men this. Other translations say that he inquired of them diligently what time the star appeared. He, he was exacting in his questions. He wants to know precisely when this newborn king arrived on the scene. And again, of course, he's not sincere in this expressed desire to worship this newborn king. It's merely a means to an end. He's trying to ascertain an approximate age of the child, information that he's going to put to terrible use when he slaughters the infants and toddlers in Bethlehem. And so that's one of the reasons some people think that this happened later on, the fact that that he would see children up to age two as a threat. Maybe this was as much as two years after the birth of Christ. We don't really know the answer to that. Maybe he was just playing it safe. Some, some young newborn children and, and young children are, are larger than others, and, and maybe he is just so wicked and, and life is so cheap as to play it safe. He was going to slaughter all that were two years old and younger. Herod rejected Christ, and he, he rejected Christ in the most dramatic and the most heinous of fashions. It wasn't merely through a refusal to believe in him, but by seeking to destroy him with the sword. And he did so because he did not want a king. Herod already had a king himself, and he wanted to maintain his kingship. Herod's response to the news of the coming of Christ was one of rejection and one of self-preservation. It was an effort to retain the throne. And how many in our own day respond in such a way. And of course, uh, seeking to end the life of the Messiah is not a possible course of action for them, but they may attack the historical reliability of his birth or the truth of Scripture or, or even the necessity of the gospel for salvation. There are countless ways in which men and women seek to retain their throne by rejecting Christ's rightful claim as Lord of all. And so they fiercely reject the gospel in an effort to prevent any from having authority over them, even God himself. And, and this is essentially the same sin and senselessness that is displayed by Herod, even if they lack the opportunity to do so in such a grand and such a grotesque scale. When sinful man encounters Christ's claim to kingship, the reaction is often to recognize the threat this poses to self-rule and to reject him. Whenever someone hears and understands and rejects the gospel, the heart issue being played out is a desire to remain on the throne of their own lives and a refusal to submit themselves to the rightful king. Rejection. That is the response of Herod, and it is one that is tragically repeated by innumerable souls who seek to retain self-rule rather than submit themselves to the kingship of Christ. But yet there is another response that we see in our passage, and though it is perhaps more subtle, it leads to the same tragic end. Let's look 
Secondly, at the indifference displayed by the chief priests and scribes. The indifference of the chief priests and scribes. So Herod the Great is not Jewish. So it's not surprising that he neither longed for nor understood when and where the Messiah would come. At best, he was half Jewish, and clearly he was not actually a practicing Jew. So his reaction is is perhaps not surprising. He did, however, know who to ask for these details. He went to the chief priests and to the scribes. And you'll, of course, recognize this crowd, the chief priests and scribes being constant opponents of Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. These are men who had arrived at the pinnacle of religious prestige and influence, and yet their hearts were hardened against the truths of God. It was this group that Jesus warned the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And before they were violently opposed to Jesus Christ, they were rather indifferent to the coming of Christ. But who who were the chief priests? Who were the scribes? Well, the chief priests, they are the leading religious aristocracy. It would have included the high priest, but the high priest wasn't necessarily a position for life. It had become quite political. People would be appointed high priest as political favors. And so it would include the high priest and also still living former high priests. You even see that later in scripture when they're deciding what to do with Jesus. You hear the words of the high priest and also uh, someone who's spoken of as the high priest when in fact he was just a former high priest who retained his position of power and influence. The chief priest would also include members of this ruling body known as the Sanhedrin. This is the council of Jewish leaders. These are men who have positions of great power and influence in Judaism. That's the the chief priest. We also see the scribes. These are those who are announced scholars of the faith. Sometimes in scripture they're referred to as the lawyers. They are, they are studied, they have memorized great portions, if not the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, they would later become known as rabbis. So these are the, the, the influential religious scholars and teachers. And given their knowledge of the scriptures, their role as religious leaders of their day, the king knew where to go for answers. And they knew immediately the answer to Herod's question. Let's look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6 of chapter 2. So he's he's heard of their questions. He's troubled. All Jerusalem is troubled. And picking up in verse 4, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. The prophet they quote is is the prophet Micah. This is chapter 5 of this book of the Old Testament. And Micah 
was a prophet about 700 years before Jesus came to earth. This is about 700 years before the events themselves take place, and we see it was foretold that the coming Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The chief priests and the scribes, they knew about this prophecy. And now they heard from the arrival of the wise men, though Gentiles, they were going around and, and saying that this event had finally taken place. And who knows how far and wide the report of the shepherds who were there that night had made its way through the city. They, they had all this head knowledge. They knew enough to inform Herod exactly where the Christ was to be born. They knew enough to know and be aware of. There were those claiming that this had taken place, that this prophecy had been fulfilled in their own day. And yet there is no indication in all of Scripture that these chief priests and these scribes were interested enough to travel roughly six miles to go and see for themselves if the Messiah had really come. Contrast that with the Messiah, who had no doubt traveled probably hundreds of miles to worship this newborn king. They wouldn't even walk out of town a few miles to see if these things were true. Now, you could say that this is an argument from silence. The text doesn't explicitly tell us that these religious figures were disinterested in the coming of Christ, but surely one of the gospel writers would have highlighted the fact that these men went out to see for themselves whether or not the Messiah had come. Nowhere in all of Scripture or any historical text outside of it do we hear that they too traveled to Bethlehem to see if the Christ child had been born. They just stayed put. They were indifferent showing a complete lack of concern or interest in the matter. And this is sadly the reaction of many when it comes to Jesus Christ. They have, they have enough head knowledge to understand and even acknowledge the realities of Scripture, but they don't respond to those truths. How many have been raised in a Christian home? They've been brought up in a, maybe even a gospel-preaching church, they're familiar enough with the teachings of the Bible, and yet they remain dead in their sins. They can rattle off answers about Jesus as quickly and as confidently as these scribes and these chief priests knew where the Christ was to be born, and yet they cannot be troubled to go and see for themselves whether or not these things are true. They are indifferent. And I think this is... By far the more common reaction of the lost in our day, it's, it's not that they passionately and violently oppose Jesus Christ and his gospel. For every militant atheist you might encounter online, there are a thousand others who simply cannot be bothered enough to care at all. In our culture, there are many who raise their fists at God and his people but I suspect there are a great many more who simply shrug their shoulders and they move on with their day. They don't care. Apathyism is as prevalent as atheism. 
if not more so. As one philosopher put it, apatheism is different and distinct from theism and atheism and agnosticism. A theist believes that God exists. An atheist believes that God does not exist. An agnostic believes that we can't know whether or not God exists. An apatheist, one who has apathy towards theism, an apatheist believes that we should not care whether or not God exists. And so as Christians, we often think of engaging the lost in terms of navigating hostile conversations with skeptics or providing helpful answers to genuine seekers, but increasingly we will encounter those who are merely indifferent to questions of eternal importance. Because when people grow comfortable and secure in their life apart from God, they can be indifferent towards Him. We see this in our culture today. We see this in the response of the chief priests and the scribes who felt secure enough in their positions, secure enough in in their religiosity, secure enough in their head knowledge, that they couldn't even muster up enough curiosity to travel a few miles to Bethlehem to see if the Messiah had been born. It's not until their positions become insecure that they, were, they, that they went from being indifferent to being dangerous and, and plotting enemies of Jesus Christ. See, this is why we are never called to make the gospel more palatable to the world around us, to try and remove the offensive parts of what it means to know and follow Jesus. We're not called to do that. The gospel does give offense. Jesus Christ does bring offense. The truths of sin and separation from God and hell and exclusivity of salvation through faith in Jesus, these are uncomfortable realities that can shake someone from their indifference and their apathy and at least force them to wrestle with the claims of Christ. And it might actually turn them to those that are opposed, that reject these truth claims. But I would argue that's actually something easier to deal with and to press into than someone who just doesn't care. We're called to bring the truth of the gospel, even if it brings offense. We're called to live the truth of the gospel, even if it is odd and increasingly unusual in our culture. And perhaps God will be pleased to use that to shake people from their indifference and their apathy. Let us only seek to be faithful to the word of God and allow the Holy Spirit to trouble the mind of the comfortable and to comfort the mind of the troubled. Indifference may be a far less dramatic response than rejection, but it is just as damning. The only right response to encountering Christ is one of worship. So let's look thirdly at the worship of the wise men. We're going to consider the response of these wise men or these magi and And taking it this way, we're going to back up to the first couple of verses here in Matthew chapter 2. We see at the start of our passage that they had traveled a great distance 
with a singular goal in mind. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 together. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, <laughs> excuse me, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Depending on your translation in front of you, it may say, We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And so they came from the east, which literally means from the rising of the sun, which would seem to indicate the far east. So, so maybe that song did get it right. They are from the orient. Now, that may have in fact been the case, though we can't be certain. And having arrived in Jerusalem, they were asking, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And while this sets Herod's wicked mind turning towards evil, it's clear that the wise men had only one intention. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The Greek word for worship means to prostrate yourself before someone in adoration. It's a sign of reverence. It's a sign of submission, of honor. And they've traveled a great distance in order to do just that. And although they were Gentiles, they were willing to put forth this great effort to come and honor Christ, the newborn king. That journey began after seeing a star which revealed to them the birth of this new king. And, and we, again, we don't need to speculate as to what astronomical anomaly took place. We cannot know. And it would seem that in any case, this is a supernatural phenomenon that, that lies outside the usual order of the cosmos. We can't look at the night sky today and figure out exactly what happened. Well, why do I say that? In verse 9, we see that that same star comes to rest over the home where Jesus is. There is no star, there is no comment, there's no planetary alignments or supernovas that appear in the sky in such a way that it can be both followed hundreds of miles and then rest above a single dwelling place. It doesn't work like that. That star, whatever it may have been, was a tool in the hands of God to direct the wise men to a person in a place that, however wise they were, they never would have discerned on their own. In any case, the wise men, they have left their homelands to travel to Jerusalem after seeing this light blazing forth. And that's what the word actually means. It's a, it's a blazing forth. This is a sign that they rightly understood to mean that the long-awaited Messiah had arrived. And their question, or after their questions regarding the location of this newborn king had sufficiently agitated Herod, they were brought before him. And let's look at verses 7 and 8. When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
as we spoke of earlier, Herod has no intention of worshiping this child. It's not genuine. Instead, this is merely a means by which he could discover more information about the child so that he could put him to death and protect his rule a little bit longer. And isn't it interesting and maybe unexpected that it is Herod who directs the wise men to Bethlehem. If you were to ask the average churchgoer, how did the wise men know to go to Bethlehem, they'll probably say the star. Herod the Great sent them to Bethlehem. They came to Jerusalem. It's just odd that that is what the text actually tells us. It's Herod who directs them on their way, and only after they set out on this direction does the star reappear. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. This is such a great act of faith that they followed this sign from God to Jerusalem and eventually to the place where the child was and they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Don't let that phrase pass you by too quickly. Think of how ecstatic they were, how emphatic this is. They rejoiced. They rejoiced exceedingly. They rejoiced exceedingly with joy, but not only joy, but with great joy. They were overjoyed. They're ecstatic that they have finally come to the end. They're overwhelmed with emotion now that they are so near the completion of this mission that they undertook long before. And so let's read to the end of the narrative, verses 11 and 12. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Notice that they didn't arrive at some stable, but enough time had obviously passed that they went to a house. And regardless of how much time has passed, we see that upon seeing Jesus, they fell down and they worshipped him. They worshipped him. These wise men came and they worshipped an infant or a baby or a young child. They worshipped him. And as a brief aside, they did not worship them. They did not worship Mary and the child. They worshipped Jesus Christ. It did not matter that this was a baby that was before them in the arms of his mother. They knew that the proper response to encountering Jesus was worship. For this was not a newborn who would one day become king of the Jews. This was he who was born king of the Jews. He is already king of the Jews. And they recognize that and they worship him. And we know that he is not king of the Jews only, but he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And so they worshiped him and they, they pay homage to him by giving of gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. You know what gold is? Uh, frankincense is a perfume. It's an incense 
Myrrh is an anointing oil. These are both very valuable. And together with the gold would no doubt have been a necessary help to Joseph and Mary when they fled to Egypt, as we'll see in coming passages. But they not only worshipped Christ, but they gave to him valuable tokens of their allegiance and their devotion. Are we not all called to do the same thing? We dare not present to Christ that which costs us nothing, but we want to bring him our best. We want to utilize our time and our talent and our treasures in ways that reveal that he is first and foremost in our lives. We must never be stingy or tight-fisted toward Christ our King. Instead, we must hold on to our possessions and our desires loosely and be willing to lay all at his feet. And having given their worship and their gifts, it's time for them to return. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Just as they were supernaturally directed to Bethlehem, they were supernaturally directed home. God warned them not to return to Herod as as he directed them, as Herod had directed them to in verse 8, as this would have brought great danger to Mary and to Joseph and to Jesus. Instead, they returned to their own country by another way. Their mission is complete. They traveled all this distance not to gain some special blessing, not to ingratiate themselves with the child's parents in order to secure influence later on. They came this great distance to look on Jesus Christ with their own eyes, to worship him, to pay homage to him, and then turn around and go home. We don't know what role they may have played in spreading the news of Christ's birth between Bethlehem and their homeland. But we do know that their involvement in the narrative of the incarnation of the Son of God has been forever preserved for us in Matthew's gospel. And in telling this part of the story, Matthew shares what no other gospel records for us. I don't believe that it's by accident that in this gospel written primarily to Jews, Matthew emphasizes that even these Gentiles rightly responded to Christ's coming while the chief priests and the scribes missed it entirely. And for our purposes this morning, the wise men provide us with a shining example of the proper response to the coming of Christ. Upon hearing that the king had been born, they ceased from their usual occupations and they went to find him at once. And having found him, they worshipped him. And their worship overflowed so that it was not in word only, but in deed. Oh, that God would be pleased to draw those we know who do not know Christ to respond in such a way. Rejection, indifference, worship. These are three different responses that we see in our passage to the coming of Christ. And of course, the implications and the applications of these truths are clear when it comes to to placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We can look at this passage as a picture of the possible responses to the claims of the gospel, either rejection or indifference or worship. 
And so the primary application of our text this morning, apart from being reminded of the miracle of the incarnation of the Son of God and fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, a primary application is to evaluate our response to the appearing of Jesus Christ and His gospel into the world. Will we reject the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords? Will we remain indifferent towards Him? Or will we worship Him? We who are in Christ can give thanks to God that He brought us to a saving knowledge of our Lord. For apart from the Spirit's work in us, we would remain indifferent or even walk in rejection of Jesus. But we must be careful that our response is not akin to that of the Pharisee who thanked God that he was not a sinner like that tax collector. Instead, we, like the tax collector, must cry out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because, brothers and sisters, we must not be so foolish as to think that once we are safe in the arms of Christ, we cannot allow the flesh to draw us into attitudes of rejection or indifference in some area of our walk with Jesus. We, too, can reject Jesus' kingship over our lives when we are confronted with the need to give up one of our idols or make costly sacrifices in order to follow him. Is there a length that you will not go to in order to worship Jesus? Do you tell Jesus, not that? I'll do anything except for that. Is, is there some area of Christ's sovereignty that you reject, that you push back on, that you rebel against? What area of your life, perhaps some sin, some selfish indulgence, some ambition, where you have effectively told Jesus that he has no claim on by your refusal to lay it at his feet when he calls for it. We can reject Jesus' kingship if we're not attempting to usurp Christ's throne in some area of life, perhaps we've allowed indifference to the things of God to cause us to become apathetic. That to the cause of Christ and, and the cause of His kingdom, we shrug our shoulders and we're content to drift along. We're wrongly content with a lukewarm faith or a mediocre level of spiritual knowledge and understanding and obedience. Is there an area of life where you understand what he's commanded of you, but in your indifference, you cannot be bothered to step out in obedience? Or are you so comfortable that you'd rather really not look too closely into what Christ would ask of you? So you don't go and see what greater depths of faith and fruitfulness he might be calling you to. If we do not keep close watch on our faith and our doctrine, we can slip into one of these negative responses in different areas of our lives. And of course, I'm not saying that, that we can do so to an extent that it would remove us from our salvation in Jesus Christ, but it can hinder 
our walk with Christ in great and dramatic ways. Let us all be in diligent prayer and diligent effort to recognize the all-surpassing worthiness of Jesus Christ, submitting to His Lordship and make seen Him and His will as our highest priority. Loved ones, let us renew our desire for a life of blessed, worshipful, full obedience to our King. Let's cast our crowns at the foot of our cross and be eager to do so. Not grudgingly casting our crowns, but be eager for the opportunity to worship Jesus Christ in such a pure and costly way as to cast things at the foot of the cross.